You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hey everybody, welcome to the YouTube live stream of my uh, channel today. Very pleased that you could join me for this question and answer time. Uh, it's a wonderful thing for me to be able to do this. I have to say that I was a little bit sad this last week when I was not able to join. And uh, I have a little bit of trouble with my chat window right here. Um, very pleased that I was uh, able to be with you now, but not able to be here this very last week. And um, I'm grateful for the opportunity to come and join. I got to say, at the very beginning of the broadcast here, I'm having some. Trouble. Oh, I guess that's why. Let's try this. There we go. Okay, so here's the idea. I'm going to begin with an opening question. Our opening question today is, what is the baptism for the dead? It comes from a guy named Jonathan. We'll get to that in just a moment. But then after I'm done with the opening question, I will answer to the best of my ability, whatever you put in in the side chat window, your questions, your comments. I'll just respond to them the very best that I can. My name is David Guzik. I have an online commentary through the entire Bible. You can find it at EnduringWord.com. And look, not every commentary uh, fits for every person. I saw some uh, Twitter comments back and forth the other day, people talking about Matthew Henry's commentary. Some people thinking that Matthew Henry's commentary was terribly boring. Other people thinking that Matthew Henry's commentary was great. Look, I get it. Not every commentary fits for every person, but there are people who find my commentary that's available absolutely free on the internet. You can go to the website, EnduringWord.com, or you can just search my name. You can also go to the great internet Bible resource known as the Blue Letter Bible and find my text commentary on there as along with a lot of other Bible resources. Anyway, uh, my Bible commentary is out there on the internet, absolutely free for people to use, and some people find it helpful. Uh, I was not able to be with you this last Thursday because I was actually in Cuba. Um, I was part of a team of pastors and leaders that was ministering to a group of about, oh, almost 700 beautiful Cubans, pastors, their wives, their children, come together for a week-long conference organized by some uh, folks in our Calvary Chapel family, both uh, from the United States but there were people on the ministry team from Calvary Chapel churches in um, Colombia, Guatemala, Spain, uh, of course, the United States, uh, Puerto Rico. Uh, it was a wonderful, wonderful time for us to get together. And I really appreciated getting to meet so many marvelous, marvelous pastors, church leaders, brothers and sisters from Cuba, I was really warmed and grateful for the time together with them. But anyway, I'm happy to be here this particular week. And again, as I said, the opening question for this week is about the baptism of the dead. It comes from a question from Jonathan that was emailed in some weeks ago. Jonathan asked this question, what does baptizing for the dead mean in 1 Corinthians? Well, really what he's talking about is the passage in 1 Corinthians 
chapter 15, verse 29, where Paul mentions something that he calls the baptism of the dead. What does that mean? Well, let, let me come back and we'll kind of discuss it. Let's understand the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The context of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is very clear. Paul is trying to teach the Corinthian believers about the resurrection of the dead. And really what he's talking about primarily is our resurrection. Apparently, there were some among the Corinthian believers who were denying the truth of the believer's resurrection. They were basically saying that there is no resurrection of the dead. And Paul is going to disprove this wrong idea that there is no resurrection from the dead, and he's going to do it with many different arguments. Now, first and foremost, his argument in 1 Corinthians all centers around the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Basically this, if Jesus, uh, let me rephrase that. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then how can you say that Jesus was raised from the dead? And of course, as Paul explains very clearly in 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection of Jesus is not only true as a historical event, but it's absolutely central to the Christian faith. It is one of the core components of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, in that context, and let me read to you 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 and 13 along those lines. Paul says this, Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. Again, there's no arguing with the logic from the Apostle Paul there. Uh, either Jesus rose from the dead or he did not. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then our faith is in vain. Now, he's listing many reasons why we can believe that there is a resurrection of the dead. And that brings us up to verse 29. Now, let me read to you 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting at verse 29. I would put this under the heading, more reasons to believe in the principle of resurrection. The, again, the number one reason Paul gives why we can believe there is a resurrection of the dead is because Jesus rose from the dead. But here are additional reasons. Again, starting at verse 29 of 1 Corinthians 15, we read, Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? then why are they baptized for the dead? And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting which you uh, in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of men, I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. All right, Paul again is asserting the truth of the resurrection of the dead. And in so asserting it, in making arguments for it, he uses this phrase in verse 29. Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Now, what, what is Paul talking about being baptized for the dead? Now, I got to say, this is a somewhat mysterious passage. I'm going to give you what I think is a pretty clear understanding of it, but it is a somewhat mysterious passage. And there have been more than 30 different attempts to interpret what the baptism of the dead is. I'm going to give you my take on it, and I believe it's true, but you can take it for what it is. The plain meaning 
in the original language is that some people are being baptized on behalf of those who have died. And Paul's point is clear. If there is no resurrection, why are they doing this? What is the point of baptizing for the dead if there is no life after death? Now, what does Paul mean by this? I think it's found, the essential meaning is found in these words. Check it out. Paul did not say, we baptize for the dead. He asked, what will they do who are baptized for the dead? Do you see the distinction there? What will they do? I think Paul is referring to a pagan custom of vicarious baptism for the dead. Let me quote to you from a commentator on 1 Corinthians named Mar. He says this, Paul simply mentions the superstitious custom without approving it and uses it to fortify his argument that there is a resurrection from the dead. Now, Paul is not approving of the practice of baptism of the dead here in 1 Corinthians 15. He's just merely asking that if there is no resurrection of the dead, if there is no life after death, why would the custom exist at all? Now, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, commonly called the Mormons, they have a practice that they call the baptism of the dead. This is erroneously based on this passage. And the Mormon practice of baptism for the dead is neither scriptural nor sensible. It is kind of a form of, and I'm abbreviating here, I'm not really doing justice to the idea, but in short form, you could say that it's a form of retroactive salvation, that you can work through your genealogy, your family tree, and in some way bring salvation to those people, even though they are dead and gone. Now, that is erroneously based on this passage, that pass, that idea is not scriptural, it's not sensible. But Paul's point is pretty plain here, at least in my mind. Paul's point goes something like this. The pagans even believe in the resurrection because they baptize for the dead. The pagans have the sense to believe in the resurrection, but some of you Corinthian Christians do not. That's why Paul says there in verse 29, why do they baptize for the dead? Why then are they baptized? He never says we, he never says I. There is zero evidence that this was a practice in biblical times or in the early church. So what is the baptism of the dead? Well, plainly speaking, Jonathan, and anybody else who's curious in this question, it was a pagan practice that Paul referred to without approving the practice. In nowhere is there any kind of approving of it but as just demonstrating the obvious truth that even pagans, or at least some pagans, recognize there's life after death. You misguided Corinthian Christians who deny the resurrection? How can you get this wrong? So I hope that's helpful for you. That's my understanding of what the baptism of the dead is. It's not my understanding alone, but it's the understanding that I have. Okay. Let's uh, move on now. Let me take a look at our chat window and we can just kind of go through. Grateful Princess of God, good morning. Greetings from Melbourne, Australia. God bless you. God bless the people in Australia. I've been very blessed to hear of rain, at least in the Sydney area, uh, in the last several days. And I hope that it's uh, widespread across the land of Australia. Uh, Lupi says, in the New King James, Hebrews 2, 7, it says, you made him lower than the angels. In the NLT, it says you made them a little lower than the angels. 
isn't it talking about Jesus? Okay, Lupe, that's a great question. Let me turn over here in my Bible to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 7. I'm familiar with the passage that you're speaking about. I just want to get it here right in front of me. Here, it's quoting from one of the Psalms. Isn't that Psalm 9 that he's quoting from there uh, in verse 6? Um, here, he's quoting from the Psalm. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor. Well, I, I got to say, Lupe, I don't know why there's a distinction between the New Living Translation and uh, what I have right in front of me here in the New King James. It really is plain that um, he's speaking here of humanity in general. Now, notice, if you go back to verse 5, for he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels, but one testified in a certain place. Here in verses 6, 7, and 8, when he's talking about those who have been made a little lower than angels, he's really talking about humanity in general. Now, that connects with Jesus because Jesus took on humanity but actually, I would say that the, the reference there in verses six, seven, and eight is to humanity in general. Notice this. It says at the end of verse eight, for in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. The him there in verse eight is referring, I believe, to humanity in general. We don't see all things in subjection yet, but what do we do see? Verse nine, we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels. He joined in humanity and therefore he had that same place. So it is true of Jesus, that idea from the Psalms quoted in Hebrews chapter two, that he was made a little lower than the angels. But it's not only true of Jesus, at least in terms of humanity. Here is a quotation from the Psalms that applies to humanity in general, mankind, if you will, not only to Jesus, but as I explained, it also applies to Jesus because he added humanity to his deity. Okay, uh, Grateful Princess of God asks this question. How can we try to share to an atheist who just keeps saying that we cannot prove the existence of God? Well, it's one of these things I would just simply say. Uh, I, I would say maybe stop trying to prove the existence of God and just simply accept and act as if the existence of God is what it is. It's self-evident. Uh, it's kind of interesting because right now, um, I've kind of set a goal for myself for the year 2020 to teach through the entire book of Psalms here for the YouTube channel. And so I've been working through the Psalms, and it wasn't long ago that I was in that Psalm where it says, uh, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And uh, really, that's kind of the situation there. For somebody to be so uh, strong in their denial of God it indicates that there is some measure of at least moral foolishness on their part. Now, maybe not intellectually foolish. Th these people may be brilliant, maybe they're wonderful thinkers in their mind, but there's something morally foolish in denying the existence of God. And so I, I would just simply say, um, 
at the end of the day, if somebody wants to deny the presence of God, they can do so, but they do so despite the evidence, not because of the evidence. Let's face it, it's a very compelling argument simply to say, we have a world that is filled with design. It makes sense that there's a designer behind the design. Okay, uh, Susan says, I need to go back up to this question. Susan says, how should Christians view evolution or the Big Bang? Anything we should reject or anything that might be supported in the Bible? Oh, Susan, you're putting your finger on a controversial question there, Susan. And here's the controversial question. There are, is it within the realm of the scriptures, is it within scriptural boundaries to say that God used the process of evolution in creation? Now, the Big Bang is a little bit of a separate question because all, and I, I need to say, as far as I understand this, I hope everybody watching this or listening to this understands I'm not an astrophysicist. I'm a Bible teacher. I'm a Bible guy. I'm not an astrophysicist. So I can't speak with authority on astrophysical matters. However, I can say this. I can say that to my knowledge, the idea of the Big Bang simply refers to the idea that scientists believe that the universe had a starting point. And from that starting point, the universe has expanded and continues to expand throughout space or whatever it is that you want to call it. So the idea that the universe had a starting point is entirely consistent with the idea of God creating the world. Now, as far as theistic evolution, that's a different category altogether because there have been Christians some Christians through history whom I have respected, at least in other areas of their theology, that have believed that at least it was possible for God to use what we call theistic evolution. By theistic evolution, we mean this, that God used and guided the process of evolution to bring forth humanity. Now, let me tell you why I think that's wrong. I do think that's a wrong teaching. I think it's wrong, number one, because that's not the kind of description that we have to my reading in the book of Genesis. We don't have God evolving a creation, especially we don't have God evolving humanity. But there is the creation of Adam, and then from Adam, the creation of Eve. That's the origin of humanity in the scriptures. Now, I know that there's people that try to make their explanations, but to me, it's just pretty plain and straightforward that there is an explanation biblically for the origin of humanity. And theistic evolution, in my mind, doesn't seem to fit with it. Even though there have been some people through the centuries that, through the decades, I should say, the, the uh, uh, idea of evolution isn't centuries old, but it's certainly decades old, uh, going back to the end of the 19th century with Charles Darwin. But uh, that thinking has been believed over the decades by some Christians. From what I understand, C.S. Lewis was a theistic evolutionist. Uh, again, I'm not completely certain on that. I don't have all the resources right there in my memory. But at least for some time in his life, 
C.S. Lewis believed in the idea of theistic evolution. Now, do I agree with him? No. Do I think that invalidates everything else that C.S. Lewis wrote or said? No, I don't think so at all. But I think he would be wrong on that point. I, I would say that theistic evolution is wrong biblically because it's the most it's not the most natural reading of the text, number one. And number two, key to the idea of evolution is death. And according to the Bible, the principle of death, especially death among humanity, came about by the fall, the sin of Adam and Eve, most pointedly Adam. Theistic evolution would put forth a whole system of death that existed before the uh, uh, before man was ever created, before Adam and Eve came forth. So I, I see some fundamental incompatibilities with the biblical descriptions and evidence and theistic evolution. While I think that the person who believes in theistic evolution is wrong, I'm not ready to call them a heretic. What I mean by a heretic is a heretic is not going to heaven, number one. And if you believe what a heretic teaches, you won't go to heaven. So that, that's my understanding of what a heretic is. I think theistic evolution is a wrong teaching. I think in some ways it's a dangerous teaching, but I, I don't think that it's a damnable teaching. I don't think it directly sends people to hell. So I guess that's the best way I can describe it for you, Susan. Um, Karina says, hello from Leesburg, Virginia. Well, hello back to you, Karina. Agnes says, hi, Pastor David. There are some black people questioning Christianity, saying that Jesus is white and therefore a white man's religion. They also say that the Bible supports slavery. How do I refute? Okay, Agnes, great questions. I'm glad that you asked them. Let me get to them. First of all, I think that it's mistaken to call Jesus either black or white, if you want to refer to a skin tone of Jesus, Jesus was not Caucasian like a Western European or even an Eastern European. Jesus was Middle Eastern. Jesus would look more like an Arabic person today that you would see in the Middle East. He would have a brown tone of skin. And racially, he wasn't uh, as the Western Europeans or the uh, Eastern Europeans, uh, certainly not uh, in the sense Asian, in the sense of the classic Asian races, nor African, so to speak, but would be sort of that Middle Eastern kind of um, ethnicity. Uh, so Christianity is not a white man's religion. It was brought to the white man. And by the way, Christianity came to Africa far before it came to Europe. Uh, Christianity came to Africa very early in Egypt, and it spread across North Africa in a very powerful way. Now, it took a long time for Christianity to go below the Sahara Desert in Africa, but Christianity came to Africa very early, uh, sooner than you could say that it came to the European continent. Fundamentally, Christianity is not a uh, a white man's religion. It's not a black man's religion. It is a religion that came from the Middle East with all that that involves. Now, to say that the Bible supports slavery, Agnes, I got to say, that is a much more complicated question. And this is kind of fresh on my mind because I've been working through 
the book of Leviticus. Matter of fact, my uh, my revised commentary through Leviticus is finished. And in a couple of weeks, we'll post it up the revised commentary on the website. Uh, Leviticus talks about slavery. And it presents slavery in this whole uh, realm of the Jewish world, of the ancient world. And I think there's something very important that we have to understand about slavery. First of all, number one, and I'll start with this, there's many different starting points you could say is, it is almost foolish beyond belief to say or to think in any way that Christianity invented slavery or was responsible for slavery or Judaism for that matter, anything having to do with the Bible. Because slavery has been a universal for humanity for as long as there has been history of humanity. Slavery uh, is not the was not caused by Christianity or by Judaism. Matter of fact, Christianity is the reason why slavery ended, not why it began or why it flourished. That's number one to start. Number two, it's very hard for us to relate to the facts of what life was like in the ancient world. Now, the Bible specifically says, I don't have the chapter and verse, but I know it's in the book of Exodus, in the law God gave to the people of Israel. I could look it up. God specifically condemns kidnapping people to make them slaves. And the Bible actually gives a death penalty for that. To kidnap people and make them slaves, as was done largely in the African slave trade, is absolutely reprehensible. And the Bible directly speaks against it in the Old Testament law. Now, having said that, there was the time, there was a time in the world for most of human history when certain kinds of slavery presented the best option available. What do I mean? Now, look, it's very hard for us to relate to in the modern world where most people in the modern world enjoy such material abundance. But it hasn't been that way for most of human history. And many people throughout the history of the world have been faced with the situation where they have no money, they have no land, they have no property, either an individual or a family, and they are faced with the dilemma, I will either starve to death myself and my family, or I'm going to sell myself into slavery to somebody else. Now, in that situation, would you call slavery a good? I suppose I would because it's better than that person and their family dying. It, it's not great. We're not saying, oh, slavery is wonderful. But given the options between the death of an individual and the death of his family from starvation, it's better for him to sell himself and his family into slavery and to live rather than to not die. And the vast majority of humanity has lived under economic conditions where that was a regular occurrence. Again, it seems so distant from us today. We look back and say, well, how could such a thing ever happen? But it was a reality in the ancient world and in the not so ancient world. Another significant way that slaves came into ancient Israel and the ancient world was through battle, conquest. And again, here's the thing. We can either 
execute you on the field of battle, or you can become a slave for the people who have conquered you. Now, is slavery a good thing then? Well, it's better than slaughtering everybody on the field of battle. By the way, battles are fought in a completely different way if both sides know that there will be an absolute complete slaughter of everybody on the other side. So there was a time when I don't think you would call slavery good, but when it was done for economic reasons or as the result of military conquest, as the spoils of battle, it was better than the alternative. And that's the slavery that the Bible is talking about. So we just need to put it in that historical perspective, which for some of us is very difficult to do. And we go back to the overarching principle that kidnapping people to make them slaves is specifically condemned in the Bible and even prescribed a death sentence. So Agnes, that's a long question to your, a long answer, I should say, to your excellent question. But the whole idea of saying that Christianity is responsible for slavery or that the Bible supports slavery is not true. Now, when you come into the New Testament, and it's even evident in the Old Testament as well, but it's more clear in the New Testament. The Bible, even though it presents slavery in a particular way as, as sometimes the better of bad options, death or slavery, the Bible never presents slavery as an ultimate good. That's why the New Testament says, if you can, free, if you can be free, be free. The, the, the goal is always freedom. The goal is always to have a world where slavery doesn't exist. And that it is never the, the better among bad options. And that's what Christians fought for. And that's what Christians established. Okay, again, thank you for your question there, Agnes. Joanne says, how would you recommend describing under the sun thinking to another brother or sister? Joanne, that's great. I don't know if you've caught some of my teaching through the book of Ecclesiastes. You can find it. I think it's on the YouTube channel. It's also on my website, EnduringWord.com. I would define under the sun thinking. Under the sun is a phrase that is used again and again and again in the book of Ecclesiastes. And it describes not weather conditions. It'll be sunny and clear. No, not that. It describes a philosophy, a frame of mind. And under the sun can be translated the thinking just like this. As far as this life is concerned. Under the sun, I see. Well, what lies in the world beyond, I don't know. But under the sun that I can see up in the sky right now, in the here and now, in the life that I now know is, that is under the sun thinking. And uh, so much of the book of Ecclesiastes, fascinating book in the Bible. I, I do, I recommend each of you go, go to the YouTube channel, look up the teachings through the book of Ecclesiastes. I think they may be a blessing to you, but so much of the book of Ecclesiastes is written from the perspective of under the sun thinking. And then it uses that perspective to show the false nature of under the sun thinking. Because ultimately, we have life beyond an under the sun world. We have eternal life. Okay, hello. I say to myself, uh, Aaron, Gracie, hi from London. Wonderful. Adolfi says, thanks for the Spanish uh, Enduring Word app. Let me come back to that one. Um, hello from Tecate, Baja. Yes, I'm so happy, Adolfi, that you mentioned the Spanish 
Enduring Word app. Download our app uh, either from the Google Play Store or from the App Store on iTunes and download it, load it onto your device or your iPad or whatever to use the Spanish. Go down to the little gear wheel that's in the bottom right-hand corner for the settings. And under settings, you'll find font size. You can adjust the font size. But you'll also see a place under settings where you can select the language, either English or Spanish. And please get word out to all your Spanish-speaking friends and brothers and sisters in Christ. Let them know that they can use the commentary easily, conveniently uh, through the Enduring Word app. Okay, uh, Mandy says, Hi, David. I'm always getting baptized at a church in the Netherlands. After getting saved and reading the Bible for two years now, any tips for discernment for getting baptized the right way? Okay, Mandy, I, I would say this. First of all, congratulations. You're... Baptism is important. And I think sometimes we don't stress the importance of baptism. Many times Christians think that we need to come up to a certain level of spirituality before we should be baptized. And here's what I see in the scriptures. If you are truly born again, if you have repented of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ and receive new life from him, then get baptized by all means. And simply, what I would just say is, Ask God to um, speak to you, to strengthen you in the faith, to let you know that you belong in his family, among the family of believers, that your sins are washed away, that you've risen to new life in Jesus Christ. These are all the things that baptism speaks to us very powerfully about. Ask God to make those things very clear and plain to you. Rejoice that God has given you something material, something you can feel with your skin about the new life that he's given you in Jesus Christ. God bless you, Mandy. Congratulations on your upcoming baptism. Uh, I say to myself, yes, looking forward to you teaching on Psalms. Yes, it's already being uploaded. We're just going to roll it out piece by piece on the YouTube channel. Uh, Aaron says, I've come across a lot of video posts recently warning against listening to Bethel and Hillsong music as it's not in line with biblical doctrine. Is this correct? Aaron, uh, Christians, I think, are of different opinions on things like this. There are some Christians who judge a work of art, and let's just call a song a work of art. They judge it by what the song is in itself. Other people say, no, where the song came from uh, matters. And if you sing the song or use the song, you are inherently recommending wherever it came from. I just say this. I can make an argument on either side of that debate. I believe that this is an area to be left up to Christian conscience and especially to pastors of congregations. Now, I, I come in on the side where personally for myself, I more look to the song itself, whether or not it's good, and I'm not as concerned as for where it came from. I'm not going to say I have no concern. I, I wouldn't sing a song from the Kingdom Hall of Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, but, but again, 
I'm not saying that it's has no bearing where the song came from, but to me, the most important thing is the song in itself. I recognize that there are other pastors, there are other leaders of congregation who have other uh, convictions, and I fully respect the convictions of a pastor who says uh, we are going to sing certain songs in worship in our congregation, and we're not going to sing these other songs. I would never question a pastor's judgment. I would, in fact, trust that the Holy Spirit is giving him guidance on that exact issue. E even while for myself, I might have a different approach. I think there needs to be a respect of Christian liberty and a respect of Christian conscience on this. And, and like I said, I think I can make an argument from either side on it. And depending on which side I wanted to speak from, I think I could make a persuasive argument. Uh, maybe we'll do that sometime and I'll kind of flesh out those arguments on another question and answer uh, session. But I do want to say I respect the individual conscience. Of, and if a Christian says, I do not believe I should sing that song because of where it came from, I said, then you know what? Then if that song is being sung in your congregation, I would totally respect you if you do not sing and you just pray unto the Lord or read your Bible while that song is being sung. Or a pastor says, no, I don't want to have that song sung in my congregation. Fine. I, I respect that. I believe there has to be a place for individual Christian conscience on these things. Okay, a freedom fighter. And we'll just take a few more questions here. I think we've got a lot of questions, but I'll just take a few more. Says, David, supporting Democrats is sin because they support abortion, homosexual marriage. What do you think? All right. I think I want to flesh this out in a greater way. But I would just say this. Now, of course, we've got a lot of viewers, a lot of listeners who are in other countries. And sometimes I think maybe they wonder, well, why should we talk about American politics? Well, okay, that's a fair question. But I'm living in the United States of America and probably most, not all by any means, but many of our viewers and listeners are in the United States or at least have an interest in American politics. Um, what, what about Democrats? I, I would say this. If you are a believer and you are in the Democratic Party, my first message for you is not, let me say that again, is not leave your party. My first, now, if you felt impressed by God to leave your party, I would not tell you don't. But that's not my first message to you. My first message to someone who's a Christian, a believer, and in the Democratic Party, I would say, fight for Christian values within your party. Now, I have to say, this is a very difficult thing to do in the modern situation. I, I have to say, I'm kind of stunned at how in recent weeks, even, prominent spokespeople in the Democratic Party have made it very clear there is no room for pro-life people within our party. I think that's sad. I think it's tragic. I think it breaks with what used to be a history. I, I remember this in the 1970s and even into the 1980s, there was a strong pro-life wing to the Democratic Party. Strong. Matter of fact, um, well, well I, I'm not going to get into the, the, the political details, but let's just let's just leave it at that. There used to be a strong pro-life wing in the Democratic Party. I think it's tragic that the leadership of the Democratic Party is doing everything it can, it seems to me, 
to crush any pro-life movement within the party and to run all those people outside of the party. I think that's tragic. But if you are a Christian and belong to the Democratic Party in the United States and favor that party, fight for all your might for a pro-life presence and for um, godliness when it comes to other social policies. I, I don't want there to be basically one political party that that Christians say they align with our values. I, I wish that there was more. So if you're a Democrat in the United States and you you uh, you are a Christian, fight for these things in your party. Maybe that ground can be regained. Um, Lupe says, I know that you're teaching out of the Psalms. I saw, listened to, and shared Psalm 1, but I haven't heard any more of you teaching on the Psalms. It's coming, Lupe. We're just going to release them one by one. Just stay posted. I think one a week is what we're going to release. Uh, maybe that'll come up more later, but for now, it's one a week. Um, evolution isn't in my Bible. Well, you're right. It isn't in the Now, let, let me tell you, Lucia, where people attempt to put evolution in the Bible. They basically say that the days of creation are not 24-hour days, but they describe grand uh, spans of history in the earth when, you know, of hundreds of thousands or millions of years over which evolution happened. That that's how people who believe in what we call theistic evolution try to put evolution in the Bible. I, I don't think that that's a correct teaching, but again, that that's that's where they do it. Um, Joanne says recently heard a pastor say that he loved science and that there's a non-created big voice behind that big behind the bang is responded to big bang. Yes, that that's basically the idea. <laughs> If there was a Big Bang, if there was an origin point for the universe, there's someone who made the bang happen. It, it had a cause. It had an origin. And then, um, uh, truth speakers, for instance, um, I will work your farm for seven years out of your daughter's hand in marriage. Yes, that's another example. And then I have to say, I, I've got to cut this short. We will uh, take these questions and uh, and uh, maybe speak to the, the ones I couldn't answer. I'll do the last one from T. Jones here. How does the Bible differentiate saved people who sin versus those that Jesus never knew, Matthew 7? And how can we know which category we fall into? I know we're not expected to be perfect, but I'm confused. Well, uh, T. Jones, you're asking a very critical question here. And when a believer sins, Sometimes we have the um, assault upon us that says, okay, wait a minute. Am I a believer, a saved person who sometimes sins? Or am I essentially an unsaved person who sometimes does godly things? That's, that's a dilemma for us sometimes. Now, I would say this. The Bible says things like this. Make your calling and election Sure. Search yourself to see if you are in the faith. And I would say the thing to do is to not decide it in a moment, 
but spend time before God, maybe taking counsel with other believers who know your life well, and ask them. Ask them. Uh, ask yourself before God. It would be better to error on the side of being too careful than to err on the side of not being careful enough. This is what we know. If somebody questions their salvation, they can always turn to Jesus in true faith and repentance right here, right now. Matter of fact, the very fact that they're concerned about their salvation is evidence that God is working in them and working in them mightily. So we can trust. And on these things, better to be a little too careful than not careful enough. All right, that's going to wrap it up for the questions that we have. I want to say thank you so much to everybody who's viewed. Remember to click the likes. That's the thumb up. Remember to describe. Uh, to describe. I'm the one who's describing. Remember to subscribe to the channel, to click on the notifications. You know, all the things everybody tells you to do for the YouTube channel. If you want to do those things, do them. If not, well, it's all right. I'm going to keep doing what I do. Uh, thank you to the people who pray for and support the work of Enduring Word. And finally, I want to say, we are taking a trip to Israel this September. You can get the news on our website, EnduringWord.com. Go there, find it, EnduringWord.com slash Israel. You can uh, join us for a marvelous, I'm going to say unbelievable, but it's going to be very believable. It's going to be a wonderful trip to Israel. Join me, my wife, Ingalil. It's going to be a great time. So you can find the information about that on the website. If you can go, we'd love to have you. And thank you for joining me. Thank you for the likes and for the support, the prayers. It's a blessing to be able to do this. Uh, I plan on being back here next week, uh, God willing. If not, then I'll post a, uh, a show uh, that um, uh, pre-recorded. But thank you for joining me for this question and answer time this week. God bless you. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.